Welcome to Grace to All. I'm your host, Paul Gray. You've probably used the word grace, sang Amazing Grace, or said grace at a meal. But did you know that God's grace is way better than we can even imagine, and that you and all people already have an abundant supply of God's unlimited amazing grace? Today, we're going to hear the truth about God's amazing grace to all people. So, sit back, relax, and prepare to be inspired and awakened to the amazing treasures that you already possess. This is truth that you can handle. Hey everybody, Paul Gray here. Appreciate you joining me for this edition of Grace to All. I have a real treasure for you today. Once in a while, we get these revelations from God, either directly from God or through somebody else or through nature or music or whatever that are just an aha moment that uh, can, uh, if we're willing, affect us positively for the rest of our lives. Well, this is one of those. This is one single teaching I found, but I didn't find it. <laughs> it's always been there. One single teaching that Jesus did that we can use to determine whether or not any given scripture passage or sermon or Bible study or teaching or something we read in another book, we can use this one short passage to determine whether or not we're seeing, hearing, reading is the truth about God. And then if it's not, we just give it no weight or we realize that it's there to teach us a lesson, but it's not descriptive of God. I'm going to tell you up front what it is, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. I got this revelation from Brad Jerzak, author, teacher, writer, who's well, he's just wonderful. I, I, I've interviewed him before. Many of you know who Brad Jerzak is. His latest book is called A More Christ-Like Word. And I'm going to give you just a little condensed version of one section of that. He says, Jesus' parable of the prodigal sons, plural, is his gospel in a nutshell. And Brad says, imagine that the whole Bible is simply an incredibly long version of the parable of the prodigals. And conversely, imagine that the parable is Jesus' ingeniously brief summary of the whole Bible distilled into short story format. He says we can do this because both offer us the same gospel narrative. One is an expansive library. The other is a tight paragraph. So he says, here's what we can do. Turn the parable into an imaginary walk-in closet organizer for every sentence, every section, every book, every chapter of the Bible. He says that means that any passage where you see rebellion, disobedience, or lostness, any story where you see the trials of Israel's wandering and exile and slavery or, or slavery or destruction, all of those can be slotted into the younger son's descent into the pig pen. Secondly, he said all of those Jewish tales of judgment, condemnation, legalism, or bad laws can be assigned somewhere within the older brother's part of the tale. 
The former, the younger, exposes humanity's addiction to rebellion. The latter, the older son, to humanity's demand for retribution. He says those are two sides of the same coin. Alienation, where both boys slaved away in the fields. So if you look at this as having a walk-in closet organizer, you can take either one of those types of things that we see that he just described and sort of put them in a box. I have a box on the floor of my walk-in closet where I throw things into that I'm either going to put in the trash because they're not wearable, they're torn up, they're whatever, or I put in a box that I'm going to give away for somebody else to use. They are not for me. I may have learned something from them at one time or another. They may not have ever served me well, but I'm no longer using them. In Hebrews 12, the writer says, throw off whatever sin is hindering you running your race. Well, those two things are sins. Thinking of God, sin, of course, means missing the mark of God's goodness. Thinking of God as going to condemn us and punish us for wild living or any kind of thing that we've been taught by our version of religion that says God's against, or feeling that God should punish somebody else for doing something that we think is wrong. Those are missing the mark. So throw those off because they keep us from running the race well. Now, there's also a third category of clothes, if you will, in our walk-in closet. Brad says to continue to every biblical passage where we see repentance, which is changing our mind, grace, flourishing, and celebration. All of these find their spot in the gospel of the son's return, the father's welcome, and the homecoming banquet in the kingdom of God. Those are the clothes that you want to put in your walk-in closet where you see them first of all. They're right in front of you when you walk in. They're useful. They're bright. They're beautiful. They're clean. They're new. You can wear them. They will serve you well. And Brad says, if we were compelled to structure all of our scripture reading into that brief narrative, just the gospel that's shown by Jesus in the parable of the prodigals and the father, we can see how the whole Bible leads us to Christ. We can see how every brick in the Bible finds its important space in the gospel road, even the ugly bits. So, into my summary of Brett, there you go. Every time you read anything in the scripture, and I'm doing this now, and I'm finding that it's extremely helpful. Anytime you read anything in scripture or any other book, anytime you watch or listen to a preacher or a Bible study, study leader or whatever, the parable of the prodigals, is our biblical, red letter, Jesus' own words way to separate the always good to all people God from anything else. When what you see from and about God in scripture or anywhere else is good, only good and always good to all people as the father was to both boys. When it's unconditional love and abundant grace and pure light with no trace of darkness, savior the world inclusion, no matter what a person's actions are, that's God. That's Papa, Jesus' father, the only true God who is love and truth and grace and peace and kindness and goodness and pure light with no trace of, of darkness. Anything else we see is mankind's false version 
of the world system of darkness's fictitious, angry God. Now, we're going to look at that passage in Luke 15 from the Mirror Translation. Here we go. I'm going to use just a few selected verses from the beginning of Luke 15, and then we're going to quickly go through the passage of the father. It's Miss Apley named the prodigal son. Really, the story's about the father's love for everybody. All right. Uh, mirror, uh, Luke 15, verse 1, the mirror. Now, all the people of reputation, the infamous tax collectors, as well as your regular sinners, were in the habit of crowding Jesus. They were magnetically drawn to him, addicted to his conversation. But the Pharisees and the law professors were furiously complaining about the warm hospitality with which Jesus embraced these people in their frequent banquets. They weren't attracted to Jesus because of their false negative mindset. Verse three, the constant murmuring of the professional religious leaders inspired this story. You know, the very best teaching that I know of on Luke 15 is from Malcolm Smith. He has a wonderful book called The Son of Mine. And he's got wonderful teachings in his uh, YouTube series, his webinars. And you can go to Malcolm Smith webinars and you can find those. But his teaching on he has four in a row. I think they're 389, 90, 91, and 392 on the prodigal, and they're just excellent. All right, Malcolm says that in this teaching, in verse 2 of Luke 15, there are two words used for the, the word that we use, received. Jesus received sinners. The first word, he says, means bringing them face-to-face, which is the highest level of intimacy eye contact, no shame, total mutual acceptance. The second word means to receive somebody in a warm, personal way, welcoming, involvement between two, not just one directional, an invitation to an inner circle, perichoresis. It carries the idea of physical contact, like like a warm hug or a hearty handshake. See, that's what Jesus did with this group that the religious people disdained, judged, excluded. Jesus embraced them. He won them there. He received them. He included them. He wasn't an aloof, holy man looking down his eyes, judging and condemning and shaming them. Malcolm says elsewhere, when we read of Jesus laying hands on people to heal them, there's an element in the original language, the Aramaic that Jesus spoke, suggesting of him gently and warmly taking people's face in their hands. Very intimate. Malcolm says, this is foundational. This is God. God sat down intentionally, publicly, almost baiting religion with the totally unacceptable dregs of society, right where the self-righteous people could see him, could see God in the flesh, accepting them, embracing them, including them. Now, Malcolm asked the question, why is religion so against this man and anybody who doesn't conform? His understanding is it's because their whole understanding of God Salvation, acceptance, and righteousness is based on behavior. If your behavior doesn't match up to their standards, then you are rejected. But God says in this story, you're not accepted by good behavior, and bad behavior is not going to equal rejection. It's not about behavior to the Father, God, at all. It's about love that loves without reference to behavior. Can you imagine a group of religious leaders hearing that God's love loves without reference to behavior in Jesus' day or today? 
If God only loves those with a record of good behavior, then God's not love. Then we are responsible for creating his love. We're the ones who bring it out. God isn't love if we got to be good first and then God will love us. We are in control of that love. We control it by being good and we can stop it by being bad. It's ridiculous when you when you see it. Malcolm says this kind of thinking lives to an awful cycle of having to get saved every week because if you screwed up on Wednesday, you better get saved again on Sunday. Malcolm calls that damnable heresy, which it is. No, that's not what God's like. God has a love that loves us in the midst of our worst behavior, in spite of our worst behavior. And that story in Luke 15 shows that in spades. Only love like that can change behavior. So Jesus is telling the religious leaders in Luke 15 that this is what the kingdom of God is like, and they've got it all wrong. You know, parables are meant to sort of blindside us with truth under the guise of a simple story. And the theme in all three of those parables, as Malcolm says, is rejoice with me. Let's have a feast, a party, a celebration, loud, public, with great food and music and the best wine and dancing, and everybody's invited. So here in this public uh, setting is Jesus, God himself, fully man, fully God, who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God himself is telling a story about himself to show us what God is like, what the kingdom of God is like. This is the only time ever in recorded scripture that Jesus tells three parables, three stories back to back to back about the same subject. That alone should give it some validity, wouldn't you think? So God in person is there, and there are two groups of people there. Historically, there are always three groups of uh, people. So far in that story, there were only two. First group is those who thought they were no good because judgmental people, primarily religious people, told them they were not good because of their actions and their behavior. And they thought, well, that must be what God's like. He judges us and he's against us because of our bad actions. They thought God was eros love, the kind of love that says, I'll love you and bless you as long as you do well and please me. But when you don't, you're toast. Second group, as there are in any crowd then and today, are those who thought they were good Ah, because of their actions, the things that they came up with to please God and judge themselves as good. They were self-righteous. They thought God was good to them because of their actions. Same type of arrows love. You please God and then God will bless you. But Jesus turns the table on both of those groups because both of those groups were lost. And he'd shown in the two stories before that with the lost sheep and the lost coin, what lostness was all about. And he loved both groups. Both groups were in the dark. The darkness of having forgotten who and whose they are. That one parable is the turning point of all history for the hopeless. And it should have been the death knell for all religion. But religion keeps rearing its ugly head. It is the death knell for those who have ears to hear the truth of the parable. Now, that story spawned an ever-growing third group of people that we today are part of. And there have always been pockets of this third group of people. It was a big part pocket in the first church. First three, four hundred years of the church, this is what most of the church believed. Then after Rome co-opted the church, the Roman legal 
system and the governmental system sadly changed and religion became perverted. But when Jesus tells the two stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin, he wants us to remember to be lost, you first have to belong. So I, I can't lose a cell phone that doesn't belong to me. I got to own it before it's mine and I can lose it. So Jesus continued in verse 11. Here's the story that's incorrectly titled the prodigal. He said, a certain man had two sons. Most of you know the story. The youngest approached his father and said, father, give me my share of the inheritance. Well, Jesus said those two few words and the group who feared God because of their action and behavior thought according to the law, ah, this boy is going to be stoned to death. And the self-righteous religious people thought, according to their law, this boy should be stoned to death. But then God, Jesus said, much to their amazement, the father gave them what they asked for. And if you study that culture, in those days, girls didn't inherit anything. But the oldest boy got two portions of the inheritance, and each succeeding boy got one portion. So if there are only two boys, the oldest one got two thirds, the younger one got a third. So here's what Jesus says. The father gave them their inheritance. <laughs> it, it Totally different than what they would have expected. That just didn't happen. Within a few days, the young man had gathered all of his belongings and left to a foreign country far away from home. Nothing holding him back now, and he soon squandered his inheritance, living it up without any restraint. Most of you have heard this story. Well, the group of sinners who were listening thought, yeah, I can relate, been there, done that. And the religious group mentally picked, or maybe even physically, picked up another stone. Verse 14. By now, the younger boy exhausted his resources, and to make matters worse, a severe famine gripped that land. He began to be in dire need. Again, the group of sinners thought, I've been there, done that, still got the T-shirt. Verse 15, he, he journeyed further into the country and attached himself to a local citizen, a non-Jew, who sent him into his fields to shepherd his pigs. Well, that sent the religious Jewish guys mentally to a rock quarry with buckets to load stones in because, according to the law, for all of those things, he deserved to be stoned to death. They were seething with judgmental anger. This guy deserves to die. Verse 16, he was so desperately hungry that he was even craving to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were feeding on, but nobody would allow him. At this point, verse 17, he came to his sentence, senses, thinking out loud or imagining. He said, you know, my father's got many hirelings working for him and everybody there's got more than enough to eat. And here I am dying of hunger. <clears throat> he said, I, I got I to change something here. So verse 18, he was up and ready to go, and he began to rehearse what he would do. He said, I'll travel home to face my father, tell him that I've sinned against heaven and before him. I will convince him that I'm no longer worthy. Uh, religion does that to us today. You're not worthy. You're depraved. You're born a sinner. I will convince him I'm no longer worthy to be called his son and beg him to employ me as one of his hired servants. Verse 20, with that, he got up and began to return the journey to his father. He was yet a long way from home when his father saw him. He was watching, waiting for him to come. I think Jesus might have paused there and looked at both groups. 
the group of sinners listening probably cringed at thinking the seeing this boy in their mind coming home because they probably had done that at different times, had been rejected and shamed and disowned and condemned. The group of self-righteous religion folks probably thought, all right, Jesus is a rabbi, so he's going to tell us now about how this Jewish father took the boy to the city gates, as their law said he should do, got the leaders together and stoned him to death. And they were licking their chops. But Jesus, God himself, speaking as the father, said, the father, filled with compassion, ran to his son, flung his arms around his neck and kissed him fondly. When the son caught his breath, he began his rehearsed sinner's prayer. That's the only recorded instance of a sinner's prayer in the Bible. Father, I've sinned before heaven and in your face, and I'm not worthy to be known as your son. But God wouldn't listen to the sinner's prayer. And he does it today. That whole thing is a myth, the man-made myth, the sinner's prayer. Father wasn't paying any attention to this and didn't give him a chance to finish his rehearsed plea. He merely instructed his slaves to immediately bring out the best robe, clothe him in it, giving a ring to put on his fingers and shoes for his feet. The father had imagined all of this happened before. In full anticipation of his son's return, he now had the grain-fattened calf, the one he was saving for when the boy came back, fattening him up for a party. He had him brought in and slaughtered. It was party time. So with our minds flooded with joy, he said, let the merry celebration begin. Ah, oh, man, the, the, the uh, original words there talk about celebrating goodness, well-being, celebrating in a merry frame of mind. God is good, only good, always good to all people. Verse 24, he says, this is the reason for our joy. My son here was dead and he was revived. He seemed to be lost forever, but here he is found. And so they began the merry celebrations. But the older brother was returning from the field, approaching the house. He heard what sounded like a concert of instruments and a choir of voices singing and dancing. Alarmed because he feared there was a party with a fatted calf because his brother had come back. Alarmed, he called one of the boy servants and asked him, what's this about? The boy answered, your brother's here. So your father sacrificed the grain fattened calf to celebrate your brother's returning home in good health. This news enraged the older brother, just like it did the religious leaders there, who had no desire to join them. But his father went out and pleaded with him. Come on in, come on in. He said to his father, ah, consider the many years I've toiled for you like a slave, and at no time did I ever dodge any of your commandments, yet you never considered rewarding me even with a little lamb so I could party with my friends. Ah, uh, remember? Verse 12, the father also gave him his inheritance, two-thirds of everything he had. What does he mean the father never gave him anything? He gave him his inheritance in advance. This boy either forgot or didn't realize it or whatever. He says, this son of yours comes home having devoured your savings by wasting it on prostitutes. There was never any mention of that. You slay the grain-fatted calf. Well, you've heard me teach before that I believe this is Jesus' clearest teaching on hell, a place of our own making. When we believe that God's love is conditional, his grace has to be earned, he's punitive and vengeful, but we find out God is not like that at all. Then, if we have a religious spirit, 
We get mad like the older son and refuse to join in the party for those that God blesses. Verse 31, the father said to him, my dear child, you're always with me. All that I have is yours. He stayed there in the boy's hell with him. And of course, we know from other scriptures about the restoration of all and every knee bowing and every tongue confessing. The boy eventually got it. Verse 32, he says, to now have our minds flooded with merriness and exceeding joy is fitting because your own brother was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. Jesus, again, points the Pharisees and the law professors to the fact that everyone has the same father. <laughs> we all do. And the, the translator, Francois, says, oh, the beauty of a father who's not offended by the other brother's initial attitude, but pleads with the same urgency. My boy, come and join the party. Oh, man. Well, in closing, there were two boys. Both forgot who the father was. Both wasted their inheritance until that point of time. Both missed the mark of what Papa is like. One was the poster boy for the worst behavior ever imaginable. The other was the poster boy for the proud, religious, legalistic, judgmental, exclusive, angry, shaming, against God being good group. And here's the Father, God, who is good, only good, always good to all has unconditional love and grace and goodness and acceptance for both boys. That, my friends, is the gospel. The true goodness of the only true God. That little section, we can use that to frame and have a filter and evaluate everything we see in scripture or any other books or any teaching. If the scripture shows that God is unconditional, lovingly, acceptingly, gracing, pure light and love and goodness all the time to everybody, then that scripture is a true representation of God. It's valuable. We can wear those clothes. Any scripture that shows that God is judgmental, condemning, exclusive, punitive, bound by the law, all of that kind of stuff, that's not a correct description of God. It was either written by somebody who doesn't know God or it was mistranslated or changed by scribes or translators or something that we're not yet aware of. So we can use with all respect to the text, to Jesus' red letter words, we can use that one parable that he told to evaluate everything in scripture and any other spiritual thing we sent, we see, and determine whether or not what we're reading and hearing and listening to and seeing is true about God or not. And then we take what's true, we rejoice in it, we go on, we take what's not true, and we let that go. It's of no value to us. Hey, this has really been helpful to me. I, I hope it has to you all, too. Thanks for being with me on Grace to All with Paul Gray. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to Grace to All. For more about us, how we can serve you, and our special guest, please visit www.gracewithpaulgray.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode and to join our Facebook group, Grace to All where you'll be inspired and awakened to more truth that you can handle.